ghosts, cryptids, murder, conspiracies, beer, what, the, ale. Hello, friends. Hello, friends. Welcome back to What the Ale, and it is our December keg. Woo woo! Woo woo! Happy keg, everybody. <laughs> I'm Alana Ray. <laughs> I'm Mama J. And we are just vibing here. It's like the week before Christmas, which is such a wild thing to think about. Um, but are you <laughs> drinking anything special, Mama? I'm having a kilt lifter tonight. What about you? Nice. I'm having a a Modelo Negra, Um, you know, classic, tried and true. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Any what the ale moments this week? Yeah. I mean, I feel like my week has been very boring, but I will say my main what the ale moment was the fact that I drove 13 hours pretty much on my own from... (laughs) Arizona with my sibling this weekend um which it was really I mean I had energy like I was fine driving the 13 hours but then after like that the Monday after I was just like I'm dead (laughs) I was like my body's sore I'm tired (laughs) I don't want to do anything so I feel like I'm on this like weird like very self-care journey week where I'm just like watching movies and relaxing and it's really nice but um yeah (laughs) what about you (laughs) that sounds nice (laughs) yeah (laughs) um well I I am still in Arizona because you guys left me here and I'm staying here for a few more days so um yeah I've been having kind of a lazy week with my dad up in the cabin and um we're having a wonderful time but it's lots of lounging around and watching movies so I get a little bit stir crazy feeling like I need to move my body a little bit more but (laughs) it's very relaxing um, yeah. But my wet deal moment is tonight I am expected to get up at 2 a.m. to go watch a meteor shower. <laughs> and I have to work in the morning. So, I mean, it'll be awesome, I'm sure. But I have to get up at 7 to work in the morning, too. So yeah. we'll see how that goes. That's cool, though. I mean, I feel like it's at least like where I live, it's a mix of foggy. And then with, there's a lot of light pollution. So we probably couldn't really see a meteor shower. So that is cool that you're somewhere where you would be able to see it. Yeah, I just hope we're able to see it. I would hate to get up in the middle of the night and go outside and not be able to find it. So, Yeah, or like have okay. the hour wrong for some reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. So, anyways, do you want to tell folks what we're doing today? Oh, yeah. So, friends, remember back to Halloween when we... You know, we're talking about some Halloween murders and one of them tied into a really big serial killer case. Um, We decided to do a deep dive on the son of Sam and whether or not he acted alone. So um, I think Mama's going to kind of dive into the history, a little bit about David Berkowitz and that sort of thing. And then I will cover the Maury Terry theory, um, which is very big and lots of twists and turns. So bear with us. We did the best we could. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, well, and I definitely want to leave time for your part. So I'm going to just kind of cover the, you know, the basic stuff pretty quickly, because most people probably know the case. 
um, and want to leave plenty of time to talk about the uh, conspiracy theories around it. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many documentaries, like I feel like every major streaming service has one about Son of Sam. So if you want to in depth about each case, like, please go look. I like the one on Netflix. <laughs> there's also a really good one on um, Max right now. Uh, Very Scary People did it as like episode two or three, I want to say. Um, so yeah, you mm-hmm. have lots of options to get a deep dive on the actual case itself outside of our little uh, overview here. So yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess I can kick us off. Um, so David Berkowitz was originally born Richard David Falco on June 1st, 1953. Um, but he ended up being adopted. Um, and so his name was changed at the time that he was adopted. Um, now, during his childhood, apparently you know, he did have a lot of like behavioral issues, some violence, um, bouts of depression. Um, you know, when you read his accounting of all of that, he would talk about having, um, you know, periods of isolation where he would lock himself in a dark closet and just want to be alone and avoid time with the family. Um, his parents were very concerned and took him to several psychiatrists and, and therapists and tried to get him help. Um, but none of the treatments seemed to help him. Mm-hmm. And um, his mom, uh, his adopted mom ended up dying when he was 14 years old of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, his life became more strained after that because of the two parents, he was closer with her. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when his uh, father remarried, he did not get along with his stepmom. And mm-hmm. so that caused more problems. Um yeah. So he did join the military right out of high school um, and did a tour in South Korea and was honorably, honorably discharged after three years in the military. And, mm-hmm. and during military time, he did become like a sharpshooter in the military. So when you qualify with your weapon, um, he qualified as a sharpshooter. So he was very good with his aim. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, yeah, so then he came home um Eventually, he moved to Yonkers, and that is where I'm going to start into uh, his terror that he started. Um, Now, I don't know if, Alana, you know that there were two stabbings that he possibly did. He admits to, um, you know, he was never officially tied to the crimes, I don't think. But did you know about the 1975 stabbings? I think they're kind of mentioned in the documentary, but I don't know details. Okay. Yeah. And it's just, um, so he decided to, you know, try to stab these two women. Um, and, you know, apparently, and this was when he was only 22 years old. It was Christmas Eve, 1975. Wow. And he stabbed two women. So one was a Hispanic woman that was never identified by police. So um, I don't know what the story is behind that but they were never able to like define her or corroborate that story but he also stabbed a 15 year old named michelle foreman and um he stabbed her six times and she ended up being hospitalized for a week but she did survive and you know he wasn't suspected of that crime at the time and then it was right after that that he moved to yonkers and so um but you know that but he admits to these crimes even though he was never officially tied to them um and then the first shooting 
that was attributed to him. And I will say, you know, he um, shot and killed six people and injured seven others. So, you know, he did this reign of terror over this year and um, did a lot of damage and really, you know, created a lot of fear uh, for New Yorkers and particularly women with children length hair because a lot of the victims were women with brown shoulder length hair, not all of them though, as you'll see. Hmm. Um, So the first shootings that were attributed to him occurred in the Bronx um, at about 1.10 a.m. on July 29th. And these two victims were Donna Loria and Jody Valenti. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were just like, um, you know, sitting in the car and, um, Loria noticed that a man was approaching and, um, and that's when, you know, he pulled out the gun and aimed it at the women and Loria was struck, um, and it was instantly killed by the bullet. And then Valenti was shot in her thigh and then a bullet missed both of the women and the shooter just like you know, ran away. And so he didn't realize that, you know, um, Valenti, she ended up surviving. Hmm. Um, And she was able to give a pretty good description of him because she saw him approaching the car. And, you know, her description was pretty good. Although, you know, she described him in his 30s. And, you know, he was in his 20s at the time, but um, she had his height right on and his weight was right about (laughs) what it was. So um, her her description of him was pretty accurate and I only want to focus on that because as we go through some of the descriptions change of what he looks like mm-hmm. um, and that will be something that might lend some credence to your theory that maybe it was more than one person doing the shooting oh, um, yeah but anyway so that was yeah <laughs> um, so that was the first shooting and so again that was in July of 76 and then in October um, it was another shooting. This it was in Queens, and the sh- the victims in the shooting were Carl De Niro, um, mm-hmm. and Rosemary Keenan. Okay, and they were parked in the car, um, and the windows like suddenly shattered, and um, the you know at first they didn't realize that they were being shot at, and um, but De Niro was bleeding from a bullet wound, but they just you know they didn't have time to realize what was happening. And um, so, you know, neither victim saw the attacker and and they both survived. Um, And De Niro had shoulder length hair. So even though, you know, he was a man, they thought that maybe um, Berkowitz had um, mistaken him for a woman because, you know, so far the the victims had all been women. Okay. And had, were they, you know, putting them all to the same person? So like at this point, so at this point, so at this point, they were just going, well, it's similar, you know, the shooting was similar. They were in a parked car, um, is similar description. Um, but the police were not yet saying publicly that, you know, this was like the same shooter or anything. Okay. And then, um, just a month later in November, um, there was two high school students, Donna DeMassi and Joanne Lamino, and they were walking home from a movie and it was like after midnight. Um, and they were just like chatting on the porch and hanging out. And they said that they were approached by a man wearing um, military fatigues. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he started to like ask them for directions or something, but, but then quickly pulled out his, 
gun, which was a revolver, and he shot each of them once. Um, and then he fired several more, more times. And, you know, some of the bullets hit the house, and then he ran away. Mm-hmm. And when the neighbor heard the um, gunshots, you know, he rushed out and he said that he saw a blonde man running past and he had a, a pistol in his left hand. Okay. Um, so again, a different description than the other people saying that it was a man with like dark curly hair. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Damasi was shot in her neck, but she ended up surviving. Oh. Um, and, you know, I, that kind of shocks me, like getting shot in the neck and you still survive. I mean, you know, your carotid arteries right there, you might think that, um, you know, I don't know, she seemed very lucky. And mm-hmm. then Lamino was hit in the back and um, she was, you know, hospitalized, but she ended up being becoming a paraplegic because of her mm-hmm. um, injury. But mm-hmm. they both survived. I mean, it is good that they both so, survived. You know, yeah. I know, but gosh, so young. I mean, you know, yeah. 16 and 18. Yeah. And to have something like this happen when they're just like hanging out as friends, coming home from a movie, like just not expecting that something like this would happen. Oh, absolutely. Um, and then January 30th of 1977, um, there was a couple and they were sitting in the car um, again. And this was in Queens and um, their names were Christine uh, Fruind and John Deal. Mm-hmm. And um, they were um, planning to drive to like a dance hall um, and they had just seen the movie Rocky, (laughs) which, you know, I kind of think is funny, you know, they saw Rocky and then, you know, just going, planning to have a dance night and all of the fun things. And then um, three gunshots came ringing through their car and luckily in a panic, um, John Deal ended up like stepping on the gas and he like drove away. Um, and so, you know, he only had minor injuries, but you know, his girlfriend, Christine, she was shot twice. Um, and she died several hours later in the hospital mm-hmm. and neither one of them saw the attacker. So okay. they weren't able to give a description to the police at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is when the police started, you know, recognizing, oh, yeah, this is like very similar to the other incidents and that all of them had been struck by 44 caliber bullets. And so the police were starting to go, oh, well, maybe, you know, there's something here. Um, and that's also when they started noticing that it, they were targeting, um, you know, women with that shoulder length hair. Oh, okay. And, you know, I don't know if you, like, I mean, because I think you watched the Netflix documentary. I mean, I watched it too. And the women in there, you know, that were interviewed back in the day, I mean, they were definitely terrified and some of them were changing their hair, dyeing their hair, cutting their hair um, because they really thought he was just targeting women with, you know, the shoulder length hair. Yeah. It was Um, like girls were like getting like crew cuts and like, they were like going for it. Yeah. Scary, which is so understandable. But yeah. yeah. Well, (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny in the documentary, I think they interviewed a hairdresser and mm-hmm. then he was like, oh, are people coming in to change their hair? And she said something like, yes, even if it's not becoming on them, you know, so she was basically. I remember that. She was like, even have if I ugly haircuts so that they, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. I was like, lady, you can't um, say that. Yeah. <laughs> I know it was so funny. I was like, uh, I think you're missing the point. Huh? <laughs> um. 
Yeah. So, but that's when, you know, police really started going, okay, I think, you know, this is a thing. Um, so then on um, March 8th is when Virginia um, Boscachirian, I think, okay. um, she was walking home from school and she was confronted by a man. Um, and she was only a block from where friend lived mm-hmm. or um, from when she was shot. And so, um, you know, she was trying to defend herself. So she lifted up her textbooks, you know, to like hold them to block um, from the killer. And, and it kind of made like a shield for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bullet did strike her in the head and ultimately she was killed by it. Um, really you know, so it's, I mean, really sad, you know, another mm-hmm. young person just, you know, walking home from school. Um, she was a university, Columbia University student. Um so yeah, I'm shot in the head. And so the, this was, you know, again, you know, most of the incidents were people sitting in the car and this was a one where she's like walking down the street. Um, and then on March 10th, that's when, you know, officials finally officially declared that they think that it's, you know, the same gun that, um, well, they knew it was the same gun that had shot a couple of them. And so they were starting to say, yeah, this, you know, is, um, probably the same shooter. Um, now, and they weren't sure if it was more than one person just using the same gun, but they thought it was the same shooter. And then on um, April um, 17, 1977, two more people were shot. And this was Alexander Esau and Valentina Serrani, Suriani. Um and they were, you know, college students, um, and they were in a car in the Bronx. Um, and this was like only a few, like maybe a block from where Soriana lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, people in the building heard the shots ring out and, um, she was sitting in the driver's seat and she was shot once. And then Isao uh, was shot twice, um, both times in the head. And Suryani died at the scene, and then he ended. Alexander ended up dying at the hospital several hours later, um, mm-hmm. but he was not able to describe the attacker. Um, but they, you know, police were able to confirm that it was the same gun used. Wow! And then that's when, you know, um, the Son of Sam letters started coming in, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the letters were published and, you know, there are, I think, um, three different like big newspapers in New York at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the other two newspapers were upset that this was like published and everything. But, um, you know, I mean, I think anybody that had that story would probably have published it. Oh, totally. Um, but this was the first time where the name Son of Sam, Sam came out, you know, because that's how uh, the shooter described himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, yeah, it was, the letter was sent directly to the news columnist, uh, Jimmy Breslin. And that was the, the daily news. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. And then in June, um, Salvatore Lupo, um, and Judy Palosito, um, mm-hmm. They were both shot, and this was in Queens. They were parked in the car. It was about 3 a.m. And again, just gunshots blasted through the car. Uh, Lupo was wounded um, in the right forearm. And 
placido uh, was shot in the right temple, temple, shoulder, and the back of the neck. Mm-hmm. But both of them survived the injuries. So, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, he was shot three times and survived those injuries. And so um, Lupo later said they, they were discussing the Sunday Sam case only moments before the shooting happened. And right. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, can you imagine like you're sitting in a car knowing that this has been happening to people mm-hmm. and, you know, moments later, your glass is shattering and there's bullets whizzing through your car. I just can't imagine how scary that must have been. Um, no, the nightmare, nightmare fuel. I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> and they described um, him as a tall, dark haired man in a leisure suit. Um. And then the the one of them claimed that they saw him leave in a car and they were able to, able to give a partial license plate number. Okay. Um, and then in July, um, July 31st, Stacy Moskowitz um, and Robert Violante uh, were sitting in his car and um, they were on their first date, oh, which no. again, really sad. And they were sharing a kiss when a man approached from the passenger side and he fired four rounds and he struck struck both of them in the head um violante lost his left eye moskowitz um she died from her injuries but she is the only female that was a part of these cases that was a blonde woman okay Um, so that was a little different than what had been before yeah um And then um, a local resident um, was walking her dog um, and she during the shooting and she saw a patrol off- officer, Michael Cantaneo, um, mm-hmm. ticketing a car that was parked near a fire hydrant. And moments later, um, the car was gone. Mm-hmm. And so she reported that to the police. Um and I mean, it's so interesting that, you know, they had no really anything to go on. They didn't know who this could possibly be, but then they ended up linking it because of that parking ticket because mm-hmm. they, you know, realized who owned the car and they were like, well, why would this, you know, boy from Yonkers be in like Queens or the Bronx in the middle of the night? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they went and just um, asked and I didn't see this in my reading, um, but, you know, I wanted to check with you because I think it was in the video and I should have written it down when I was watching the documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like the the owner of the dog that was the neighbor, mm-hmm. did his daughter say that Berkowitz had shot the dog? Yeah. Okay. I was going to say it because I thought I heard that in the um, documentary, but I didn't see that in my reading. So, um, so yeah, when the police went, um, you know, they were just like, they saw the car there and then they were kind of staking out the car and asking like neighbors if they know him. And yeah, the daughter of the neighbor who owned the dog, <laughs> which later, you know, Berkowitz says that the son of Sam is the dog and the dog had a demon who was telling him to kill these people. Um, but yeah, the woman who was the daughter of the man that owned the dog said that Brickwoods had killed the dog. Um, and then they had another neighbor that came out and kind of sat with them and waited for Brickwoods to come out. And when he came out to the car, he was able to say, yeah, that's him. And the police were able to go up to him. Um, 
And, you know, right away when, um, when, you know, they came up to him, you know, he said, um, you know, he said, uh, you know, you got me. And like, he totally just admitted that he was the son of Sam. And um, so, you know, it was like, went in without incident the um some of the people were upset that the police like took him in through the main entrance of the jail because they thought that it was like a media circus and they thought they were giving him more attention than what he deserved um yeah but you know so he did do the story that the dog and demon dog had told him um to do all of this and you know but he did admit to the crimes and um you know he you know, because he ended up eventually pleading guilty, you know, originally he was going to do an insanity thing, but he mm-hmm. ended up pleading guilty. Um, and so, you know, he was sentenced. Um, I mean, he'll be in for life. I was reading that he does like, you know, every few years he does get um, where he gets up for parole, but obviously every time he's come up for parole, he's been denied. Um, and I even saw like a recent article um, you know, cause he'll be up for parole again. And, you know, he had said something like, you know, he doesn't even want to go up for parole. Like he's accepted the sentence he's gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I don't even know if he'll go in front of the board anymore. I, I mean, I definitely don't, they would let him out. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I know I sent you a link earlier cause he's got this website, um, you know, because he's found Jesus and, um, he has a website telling his testimonial and, you know, in that he does talk about some of um, the childhood stuff and how, you know, he had issues from, you know, the time he was a small child. And, um, and I mean, none of it really, it didn't sound like there was like a lot of significant abuse or anything like that, just that he's just always had issues. Um, and that depressing for him. Um, but yeah, it was just interesting to see him preaching this testimonial. And at the bottom of the website, it does say like he doesn't benefit. He doesn't get any money from any of that, which I think is good. I don't think he should benefit financially from it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but obviously, you know, we wanted to cover what the crimes were quickly. But the main thing we wanted to do today was talk about um, the theories, because obviously David Berkowitz is the one that is serving all of the time for these crimes, um, he'll be in for life, but, um, there are other theories that he had help or wasn't alone or that there were cult things happening. Um, and even on his website, you know, his religious website, he does say that he was interested in the occult and got involved in some of those ritualistic behaviors, although he does not name anybody, never does say on the website that anybody helped him with the crimes, but just that he was interested in the occult. Yeah. So, so, um, let's get into why people think, uh, maybe Berkowitz didn't do this. Um, and I want to say really, there is one main person who really drove this theory and that is Maury Terry. Um, and, Mm -hmm. Maury was an investigative journalist. He worked for IBM um, and he dedicated, I mean, years to the pursuit of the theory. And I mean, he died in like 2017, I want to say, and he was still working on this case until the day he died. Yeah. Like the man was working. Um, so like I mentioned, he had started out at IBM. Um, he 
was kind of writing about very basic things. He even said he was tired of writing about like technology and computers. Like he just was like, it's boring to me. I want something more interesting. Um, And something really interesting about Maury is that he was a Yonkers native. So the case felt really close to home. It felt personal. Um, You know, like Berkowitz was arrested like around the corner from his like childhood home. I mean, it was like a very close to home case for him. Um, And a lot of people. And I think all any. Well, I was going to say, I think anybody in New York, I mean, because everybody was just so terrified that I feel like everybody felt very impacted by it. Oh, um, and then because, you know, it was a, a people from like those same two neighborhoods, the Bronx and Queens, you know, a lot of people knew the victims. And so, yeah, I just think everybody in New York was very impacted by it. Oh, yeah. I feel like you like if you find an old New Yorker and you ask them like, hey, do you remember Son of Sam? They probably have some story from that time, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's just really sad. Um But something else to kind of note about Maury is that he has an amazing, or he had an amazing memory. Um, Apparently he, any song he had ever heard, he knew the artist, the album, and even like the number it was on the charts at the time. He would like every single baseball fact and statistic from all of his favorite teams for all the years, not just like that year. so Maury was very smart, very reputable as a person, um, mm-hmm. which is why I think so many people do put some weight into this theory. Um, and well, so- I did read some that some of the investigators also felt like, you know, once Brickowitz confessed, there was like a hurry to just be like case closed. And yeah. I feel like there was a couple other like investigators that worked for the police that also were like, I don't think this is the whole story. But, you know, they were told to close the case. Yeah. So there were definitely a few where they felt like it was case closed. But, like, the main players, the main investigators that were involved with the case really still do maintain that, like, they did the best they could. They got the guy. They, you know, no no questions. Like, that type of thing. Um, And that comes into play later when people tried. um, Because they tried to reopen the case a few times. They tried to do a lot of things. Um, but yeah so like you said um like a lot of people in general just thought the NYPD did the best they could to wrap the case up quickly even though all of the sketches look different and we'll post all of the pictures of the police sketches because they do they don't like only one of them looks like Berkowitz to me um the rest of them I agree Um, and there were even like just differences like you know Berkowitz was like kind of a bigger guy he was a little more heavy set and some of them were like guys with blonde hair which is not at all what Berkowitz looked like you know like um but I was surprised he's only 5'8 because I thought I mean he always looks bigger to me but you know he was like kind of a broad guy but he was he's kind of a short guy for you know I mean gosh you're 5'8 so yeah yeah Yeah. he wasn't a very tall guy it's weird yeah um no I'm just kidding um but yeah so people were noticing just the differences between the sketches that type of thing and a lot of people like I said think that NYPD were just like we have a name we're just gonna like do that case closed you know um and I do think well I'm sure they felt a lot of pressure to close the case and be done with it 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say is they really did feel a lot of pressure. There was a lot of pressure from the mayor, the DA. Um, And something I want to note about that, which I guess I could just do this now. It's somewhere in my notes. I don't have it in front of me right now. But apparently, like, after the Son of Sam case, like, the NYPD had the biggest promotions, like, ceremony in its history. Like, it was an election year, so they were getting new chief of police and new DAs and new whatever. So all of the guys that worked on the case were kind of like the theory is they were kind of using this to like up their clout a bit. Um, and then of course the promotions, yeah. every single investigator that worked on the case got a promotion. Um, and I'm not saying that you don't deserve a promotion when you catch a serial killer. I'm just saying that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So def- I mean, and even like the, investigators in the documentary were like yeah like careers were made because of this case like some of us just like we wouldn't yeah, have sure if it weren't for this case um and so it does make sense as to why people in those groups like a don't want to go down that route or b we're really quick to close it um but yeah so something i wanted to touch on which you touched on was uh tommy zano's um like eyewitnessing of the Muscovitz killing. And the interesting thing with that is that he didn't believe it was Berkowitz at all. Like his sketch looked different. It didn't look like Berkowitz at all. He himself was like, when I saw mm-hmm. David Berkowitz, I knew that wasn't the guy that shot them. Um, really? Yeah. And so then the other witness who saw Berkowitz, um, the car with the ticket, and she actually did see Berkowitz, but it was five blocks away and it was two minutes before the shooting. And I don't know if folks are aware, but New York City blocks, it takes more than two minutes to walk five <laughs> blocks, babe. Yeah, they're big like, blocks. They tried it. They tried it running. They tried it walking. Like, I mean, Maury definitely huh? like tried to go that path a few times, could not get it in two minutes. So wow, it's just an interesting note um that so but maybe he was like their maybe getaway driver or something but yeah he wasn't the actual shooter yeah and this comes into play in a few others because um um well we'll get to it later but there's like an interview where Berkowitz kind of talks about like oh I was at that shooting but I didn't pull the trigger I only pulled the trigger at these shootings you know um and it's really weird but we'll get into that as we go on because we need to like learn the key players first. <laughs> um, okay. So remember the Carr family um, who were the owners of the dog and um, Berkowitz's neighbors? Yeah. So their dad is Sam Carr and Sam has two sons. He has John Carr and he has Michael Carr. Um are his sons and um okay how maury kind of started really investigating the theory was that in one of the letters there is a reference to a john wheaties and when Mm. maury looked in the phone book he saw that john wheat Carr, the son of sam Carr, you know Mm. was registered in the phone book and um it is interesting that someone's name is John Wheaties. Again, Berkowitz could have included that as like a whatever, but it is weird to like implicate other people, you know? 
Um, yeah. And so a funny thing about this though, is that John and Maury were in homeroom together in high school. Like, like I said, oh, this really? very personal case to Maury. So, and all Maury really had to say about him was like, he was a shy, quiet, kind of weird kid. And that he knew he had a younger brother named Michael. Like he was like, that's all I remember about this guy. Um, okay. But it it isn't like, again, like I said, very close to home was this case for him. Um, and I guess a lot of people knew Sam Carr was not the best guy. Um, he apparently was like physically and emotionally abusive to his sons. And there were a lot of parallels between the letter and that as well, because he talks about when Sam gets angry, he hits us or, you know, whatever. Um, So again, if we're looking at, you know, it is interesting, one, that John Wheaties is brought up. It's interesting that, two, they're talking about Sam being angry, Sam being abusive. And then there's the reputation that he was not nice to his children. I'm not saying that, like, Berkowitz wouldn't have written it but I feel like if I were a serial killer and I had daddy issues that's more what I would write about you know um yeah my neighbor's annoying dog personally um and so Maury like from the beginning was like okay I'm gonna like try to sell this story so he put together a little like thing and was like hey this is weird um but you know Mm -hmm didn't have a ton of evidence so he tried to sell it to IBM and they were like you need to keep digging because we don't want to be sued for libel um yeah which is super fair so um Maury kept you know kind of pressing and he kind of enlisted a whole bunch of other journalists um some detectives in the NYPD who also believe the case was kind of rushed to close and that type of thing so one journalist he worked with was someone whose last name was Mittiger. And apparently Mittiger was able to interview Berkowitz in the Brooklyn psych ward. Um, and while Mittiger was interviewing him, Berkowitz passed him a note that said that there were other sons out there. Um, hmm. So then Mittiger and Maury went to the DA and asked him to reopen the case. And he was like, basically, it was a thanks, but no thanks. Like, again, just very not interested in hearing anything else. Um, And apparently part of this was because um, some things were handled with the case that were also just shady that could get the whole case thrown out and Berkowitz free if they Hmm. reopened it. So I guess when they arrested Berkowitz, um, they actually like broke into his car without a warrant and had a judge yeah, that I did read after that. he was arrested. Um, yeah. They never interviewed. They, what I read was. Oh, yeah. They could see the handle of a gun like sticking out from under the seat. Yeah. And then they broke into the car. Um, and then so they were able to get the gun. And then they were able to get a note that was like a Son of Sam note that was in the glove box or something. Yeah. But so, yeah, they, they, they broke into the car before, without the warrant. Yeah. And I mean, again, I think like probable cause is a possibility but it is just kind of shady um and then because Berkowitz confessed it was just easy to be like oh he confessed we're fine um yeah but they didn't want to risk reopening the case and that coming out and people um like Berkowitz getting free basically because it was a mistrial type of thing 
Um, something else to note is that they never interviewed the Carr children, um, which they interviewed Sam Carr, but not that intensely, but they didn't interview any of the family, really, the police, at least. Hmm. Um, okay. And so, so the anyway, police just weren't weren't even seeing them as a part of it then. No, they they weren't even they weren't making the connections between the note and the family or any of that. No, and they didn't. I mean, even because like supposedly Berkowitz like shot their dog and stuff. Like they didn't even think to interview the whole family, like just the dad. Like that, it it just feels weird to me. Yeah. Um, but Mediger was also able to take photos of Berkowitz in the hospital. Um. And this was kind of like a publicity mess for the NYPD and everybody because it was the first time the world got to see Berkowitz because when they were like bringing him outside of when they like brought him into the NYPD the first time, they didn't show his face, they didn't whatever. And so Medicare got this photo of him sleeping and it was printed with the tagline, Sam sleeps in the New York Post. And I mean, people were just angry. Um so after that, they basically kept mm-hmm. Berkowitz under a very tight watch, very tight. Like he was pretty much locked up with no access to any sort of media, any sort of anything, because they didn't want him to be more out there, I guess. Um, yeah. And apparently Mediger was actually arrested for leaking the photo, which sucks. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I mean, I don't think he got that serious of a penalty. He just, like, got in trouble. Um, So, Maury decided to look more into the Carr family, and he got a tip that they hung out a lot over by Untermeyer Park. Um, And I guess there's, like, a path that goes between Berkowitz and Carr's homes. Um... And there's like an arc, an aqueduct that runs into the Hudson. And then it's like right next to the park. And um, Maury didn't necessarily see bodies, but apparently bodies of German shepherds that had been mutilated around the park um, had been found there. They also apparently in the neighborhood, lots of dogs had like oh, wow. been shot. Their ears had been cut off. And then, like I said, they had been quote unquote sacrificed by some cult. Um, or occult behavior. Wow. And um, Maury did go into a structure in the park that had satanic symbolism. I'm not sure if it was just like pentagrams or what else was on there, but he said like it just seemed very much like there could have been rituals happening in that space. Um, wow. Whatever the markings were. Um, apparently, upon like interviewing neighbors, they did say that they would hear. Um, like chanting coming from the structure and the park and that type of thing, but people just knew to kind of avoid it. Um, wow. And they attribute- yeah, I would avoid it too. <laughs> yeah, like if I heard chanting in a park, there's no way I'm walking over there. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but apparently, they kind of attributed it all to a cult called the Children. Um, and apparently, they were like very much what you think of with a cult. Like they'd wear like weird robes and commit sacrifices of dogs and um all of those type of things and something that was also noticed in or mentioned in the documentary is that this is like prime time satanic panic era right like the exorcist had just come out um 
And so Rosemary's baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so people were just taking all of this really to the extremes. They were kind of like spiraling. Um, Maury apparently said he found letters that had been covered in occult symbols. Um, they used to hang out at a nightclub called Eliphas nightclub, um, which is named after a famous black magician. Um, and apparently this black magician, Eliphas Levy, drew what became the son of Sam symbol. So oh, really? it's interesting that they hang out at a bar that has this guy's name and he's the guy that made the symbol. So again, could be very circumstantial, but it's interesting. Um, uh-huh. He also on the letters found things related to Beelzebub. Um, there were different symbols, like I said, there was something that um like a text that basically said I'll be back, which was recited by the devil in some text that they had access to. Um and mm-hmm. according to Maury, um, he believed both of the Carr brothers were definitely involved and Berkowitz was also involved. Um couldn't a hundred percent prove it, but was really like pretty sure this was a thing. Um, so he started kind of cruising by the car house, just hoping to like do a casual, like bump in, run into them type of thing. Um, okay. And he got word that he actually, so John Carr had been killed in Minot, North Dakota. So he was like, that's random. Why is a New Yorker in North Dakota? So he went, um, and Minot's a really small community. Only about 35,000 people live there. Um, there's an Air Force base near town, which is where most people, like, are employed. And, like, that's kind of what the community really is. Um, and apparently Carr had okay. been trespassing on base housing. And an officer went in to investigate. And a shot went off. Um, oh, his wow. friend was in the housing unit that they were in as well. Um, and investigators found, like, really just felt it was weird. Like, it kind of looked like it could be, like, a, like, self-defense. Like, she shot him, but it really was proven more to be a self-inflicted wound. Um, Hmm. And so people believe that Carr killed himself rather than be arrested is kind of what the people of mine the investigators felt that way because they were they were going to just arrest him for trespassing you know nothing major but why was he so afraid of getting arrested that he took his life you know um yeah so apparently they did get intel that Berkowitz and Carr were associates apparently there was some evidence that Berkowitz could have even come to Minot um and he uh, Carr was known to draw the son of Sam symbol around town before it was even published in the paper. Really? So there was like, I think they said, oh, really? In, yeah, I think they said in a phone booth or something, the symbol had been drawn and it was there like before the son of Sam letters were even published in the paper. Um, hmm. Well, that's interesting. Right. And so I can't remember how Carr was connected to this therapist, but Carr was connected to a therapist at one point. And he did confess that he might be in some trouble in New York because he knew David Berkowitz. So even that is suspicious. Like, you know, again, the therapist 
didn't give any other details, um, but I do think that's interesting. Um, he claimed that he had info the NYPD would be interested in. He did confess to occult practices and that rituals um, that had been being performed in Minot, like he was involved in. Um, he said okay. in one instance, a dog was killed and that they drank the blood of the dog. So very wow. dark, very interesting. Um, so at least he's engaging in like strange behavior for sure. But if he's claiming to know Berkowitz, I do think that's interesting. Um, well, and if he's saying that, you know, th that link might get him in trouble. I mean, that means there's something there, you know, right. he knows something or was part of something or. Right. And that's how I feel. I'm like, it just feels like, why would you take your own life if you knew, yeah. you know, like if you were fine? Mm -hmm. um, so to me, it's all very weird. Um, but a lot of people in Minot, at least, felt like he was kind of forced to take his own life by the cult. Like maybe they were closing in on him. And so they were like, you either mm -hmm. need to take your own life or you need to like go down like Berkowitz did. Um, mm -hmm. the, um, something interesting too, is they really did think that John was kind of the leader of the group. So mm. I just think that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, and they were actually sending verified reports to the Brooklyn PD and they did not receive a single response. Like not even a, Hey, we hmm. received these documents were reviewed. They did not get a single response. And they were like, Hey, this John Carr guy wow. is suspicious. Hey, this John Carr guy is suspicious. Nothing. So again, wow. Really feeding into that piece of like, maybe they were onto something with the NYPD, like just not wanting to look at it at all, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, um, so like I said, Maury had gone to Minot to investigate. And when he got back, he actually received word that Michael Carr had been killed in a car accident. And oh. um, people were unsure if it was like an actual accident, like he lost control of the car, if he was taking his own life, or if his car was run off the road. So apparently... He was going 97 miles an hour before crashing into a pole, which okay. in a neighborhood, why are you going 97 miles an hour? Yeah, I was going to say that sort of sounds like it could be intentional. Um, something else they did say was that there were tire marks at the scene from another car that kind of suggested that maybe he had been run off the road, but they couldn't substantiate when those tire marks were made. So they couldn't say, oh yeah, those were made at the same time he was there. Um, yeah. And like I mentioned, like his brother was involved with the occult, um, and he seemed to have an interest in the occult as well. And apparently was connected to the process church of final judgment, um, which I'll get into huh. in a minute. <laughs> that sounds, <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds not fun. I'll get, I, I'll do like a mini blurb about that in a minute. But one last thing too, is that before okay. that, he did struggle with addiction to drugs and alcohol. Um, and he actually had turned to Scientology to curb those addictions. And he was doing that with John as well. So, okay. In my opinion, Sci Scientology is a little cult-like. Something they did mention was like, yeah. they kind of did Scientology and then kind of 
started doing their own version of Scientology when they didn't want to pay for it anymore. Um, him and his brother. Yeah. So it is interesting. Um, but I did want to just do a little hmm. blurb on the process church of the final judgment, just because it's kind of relevant and has a cool connection to other things. Um, but so they, well, and I just, I'm just not a fan of things that are super judgy. <laughs> so final <laughs> judgment seems either. very, um, not in line with my values. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We, we don't like judging my judgersons over here. Um, <laughs> but okay. So the process church kind of started in 1963 when the founders met at a local Scientology chapter in London. Um, and they had actually trained to be auditors in Scientology, but they were looking for something more out of it. Like, I think they wanted something more intense. They wanted something to actually happen. Um, and so they were like devoted their lives to bringing on the end of the world. Um, and, and how did they do that? <laughs> girl, I don't know. Um, but apparently... <laughs> German shepherd dogs were a big symbol in the group and pretty much all of the dogs killed in Minot and Yonkers were German shepherds. Um, and so huh. the founders decided to bring the church to San Francisco and fun facts, they had a really famous neighbor. Could you guess who their, uh, I wouldn't say famous and infamous neighbor was. I don't know. Charles Manson. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So at the time, Manson actually wrote for the Process magazine and contributed articles to the death section of the magazine. Um, two of their members also had visited Manson in prison after the murders in 1969 as well. Um, so Maury reached out to Ed Sanders who wrote um, the family, which was about like the Manson murders and the family and all of that. And there were some clear parallels, like both, you know, the guys in New York and Manson were related to Scientology directly or indirectly. And they both had cults that were called, you know, familial names. One was the children, one was the family, like, yeah. like the belief systems are just very similar. He was like, and more yeah. like, yeah, it sounds crazy, but it's just weird. Like, um, well, but I mean, it sounds crazy because it is right. Like, yeah. I mean, these are crazy things that people were believing or doing, or you know, I mean, most people would say the whole Manson family thing feels a little crazy, but doesn't mean it didn't happen. Exactly. And so to me, it just feels like it, I mean, it. it's all circumstantial. Like you can't really substantiate it that much, but then you're also like, but when is it too much of a coincidence? You know, that's where I'm yeah. at. This. Well, um, I mean, it, it really does sound like you need somebody like a witness to come forward and like lay it all out, make all the connections. But it definitely sounds like there's enough to be intriguing. Exactly. And so Maury was basically given the authority by I um oh my gosh IBM there we go to write about the story and the public did like they really saw the connection and the NYPD and the DA's office were pissed 
I mean, they were like yeah. so angry. Um, and he was brought, um, or after this, actually, D.A. Santucci of Queens um, supported the claims and decided to reopen the case. But like, as we go on, you'll just notice like nothing really seemed to go anywhere with that. Like Santucci couldn't really get people to cooperate or really do much when he reopened it. Um, so then Maury it sounds like a lot of people were sitting on their fat raises. They didn't want to admit they were wrong or that they closed the case too fast. That's how I feel. Um, but then Maury was brought onto what's happening. America. Have you ever watched that show? No. Okay. It kind of seems very, it's just like a talk show. Um, but he was brought onto the show and they did a lot of due diligence to like disprove his claims. Like they sent researchers to Minot, they researched in Yonkers, they talked to the same people Maury had talked to, and they couldn't poke holes in his case. And then when they would ask him questions, he had like a valid answer for every question they had. So again, I'm not saying that like Maury's 100% right. I'm just saying if it's hard to disprove him, maybe there's more than just coincidence here, you know? Um, Well, and I watched the documentary a while ago, so I don't really remember all the things, but I remember being very convinced by his argument. Honestly, I'm sold on some of it. And as we go on, we'll see maybe why Maury didn't necessarily get the belief aside from like lack of support from the NYPD. Um, But after this interview he did on the TV, Berkowitz contacted him for an interview and he sent Maury a letter that basically said, I am guilty, but I didn't act alone. And he said that he did not want to talk on the record um okay which i'm sorry but i feel like anything you say to a reporter's on the record even if you say off the record it's still going to be on the record you know like they can't turn that off (laughs) if it's a good well it's not supposed to be yeah Um, but it's not supposed to be they're supposed to be like ethics but yeah it would be really hard to have somebody tell you something off the record and then never say anything about it yeah exactly so um when Maury went to talk to him, he did claim that Carr was a member of the cult and that there were other members scattered across the U.S. Um, and in his first letter to Maury, something he said was, the public will never, ever believe you, no matter how well the evidence is presented. And I just mm-hmm. want us to remember that Berkowitz said that from the beginning. Yeah. Because- you know, it's really hard. <laughs> um, yeah. So apparently Terry Gardner of the Minot PD got a package as well. Um, and inside the package, there were satanic images. Um, and there was a book called The Anatomy of Witchcraft. And when he flipped through the book and oh, the book was from Berkowitz, by the way. Um, and oh, okay. He went in through the book. There were some notes in the margins and things. And one had a clue regarding a young woman named Arliss Perry, um, who was a 19-year-old murdered at Stanford University. Um, 
And Arliss was from Bismarck, North Dakota. She was very religious. Um, they believed at the time she was murdered as part of a satanic ritual. Um, and she lived on the campus with her husband. Um, something really dark is like they found candies, not candies, sorry, candles inserted into her body. Um, and she had been oh, wow. brutally sexually assaulted um, and that type of thing. And so the belief is that like she had been locked in, she was like killed on the campus church. And um, it was believed that she had been locked in the church with her killer. Um, and he killed her and then like fled the scene. Um, and Berkowitz had basically said that a cult had targeted her in North Dakota and followed her to Stanford um, because I guess people at the church had tried to convert the cult members and mm. maybe she saw something she shouldn't have is kind of how he put it. Um, and he also said that someone in a cult meeting claimed to have killed Arliss Perry or that he knew who, who did. Um, okay. But he wasn't saying he had any direct involvement in that. No, no. Okay. So Berkowitz, Berkowitz did not take any responsibility for this. And we're going to um, come back to that later. I hate that we're like jumping okay. around, but I'm trying to find the most like linear way through the story. Okay. Um, but so, yeah, so they felt that there was enough evidence there to at least talk to Berkowitz now that he was willing to talk. So the reporters met with him in Attica and he initially said he was afraid to talk because someone would kill his father. Um, and so Berkowitz also like, didn't want to admit that he was in touch with Maury or that there was any sort of conspiracy going on. Um, Maury then went to Attica cause they had like made an appointment to meet and Berkowitz refused to see him. So then wow. Berkowitz sent him a letter that was like, I have to stay silent, um, but I can't stop you from publishing your findings. He was basically just like, yeah. like I am afraid of retaliation. Um, yeah, I would be and, too. Yeah, super fair. Um, but Maury was really obsessed with the case. So even though it was a real letdown that Berkowitz wasn't interested in, you know, collaborating, he was like, I'm going to do research because... I need to know some things. Um, uh -huh. So they started talking to a prison informant named Vinny uh, who got into contact with him. So apparently Vinny was in Attica with Berkowitz and he claimed to have knowledge of the cult after talking to him. Um, he said that a lot of the cult dealings also involved things like drug trafficking and porn. Um, and he said that they made a snuff film of the Moskowitz killing, which if folks, this sounds yeah. familiar, we're getting into what we talked about on our flight. So um, there was a photographer named Ron Sisman and um, a lot of people, or at least Vinny implicated that he could have been the cameraman of whatever the snuff film was. Um, yeah. So he was known for making adult films and uh, on Halloween night, he went out to dinner with his girlfriend, Elizabeth Platzman. And when they returned home from dinner, someone pushed their way into their apartment, shot them both and ransacked the apartment as if they were looking for something. Um, 
And so Maury kind of was like, this is just really interesting. I don't really know. And they thought um, someone they could talk to was Roy Raiden because the initials RR were included on like um, in what um, Vinny had kind of talked to them about. He was like, he said someone named RR was involved. And then they thought, okay, Roy Raiden. So yeah. Roy Raiden kind of ran in the same uh, crowd. He was like the party boy of the Hamptons. He had this lavish mansion where he held like sex parties and all sorts of wild times. Um, and apparently at his house, there was a rape and beating of a young girl named Melanie Holler who refused to participate in one of the orgies. Um and so Maury, at least at this time, believed that Raiden was the leader of the cult. And so Maury wanted to interview Raiden, but he unfortunately was found killed in a canyon in California. Um, some people uh-huh. said that it was a result of a bad deal for the Cotton Club. Um, and that definitely like drugs and like money issues were related to the killing. Um, so at this point, Maury's kind of like, the people I want to talk to are all being killed. Um, so he decides to kind of just. Yeah. Well, and Roy Raiden. Yeah. I, from when I did this story, you know, Roy Raiden was known not just for like filming sex stuff, but he enjoyed filming like just dark, crazy stuff. So, you know, the idea that he would want like to be involved in a snuff film kind of makes sense based on what people said he was into. Yeah, definitely. I I agree. That was something they mentioned in the documentary. So yeah, porn, but also just like any sort of snuff, like dark films, anything. It was really interesting. Um, So Maury, um, at this time, again, like everyone had been killed. Berkowitz wasn't cooperating. The NYPD wasn't opening the case. So he was like, I'm going to write a book. So Maury wrote a book. um, And people around the country were shocked by all of the links and how everything seemed to connect. Like they were just like, it makes sense. Like even um, Moskowitz's mother, like believed what Maury's theory was. Like she yeah. was, I can see it. Um, and so there were people like writing into Maury about other murders and other strange deaths that might be related. Um, some people thought Maury was going in too far like maybe he was like looking for the most like crazy and outrageous story um and like I mentioned earlier this was around the same time as Satanic Panic and so he like went on shows like Geraldo Rivera and other things and um like the book really fit into the sensationalism of satanic panic but it also discredited him like it was not helpful for his case because people kind of labeled him as a quack even though his like research was sound and like they were having trouble disproving the theory there was a lot of evidence people were like this guy's just crazy he's like one of those satanic people um yeah i mean because once everybody realized that all of that stuff was not true yeah, I think any associations with that would, would make you look bad, you know? Yeah, and so it really did. I mean, it, it had an impact on his career. It had an impact, like, 
at the time like his wife left him like I mean there was all sorts of just like really things that came out of this type of stuff um well but the thing that really sucks is that like the satanic panic stuff there was no evidence for any of that you Mm -hmm. know whereas he has tons of evidence and tons of things that are linking but because people were not wanting to be duped again you know they didn't want to believe it but you know he actually has things that are evidence that things are there are connections you know yeah and something like I just like really noticed was like it seems like Maury went on all the shows talked to all the people did all the things because he was like no like no one's listening to me like you need like like, the more people I reach the more people will listen to me but that just wasn't happening he was just kind of labeled as a quack Mm -hmm. which is really sad um but so while Maury's kind of going on this journey, um, David Berkowitz was busy getting into Jesus. Um, he really <laughs> found his way to the light, apparently. He is, you know, all of that. And so he became really close with the church chaplain. And the chaplain said that Berkowitz basically was like, hey, I'm ready to talk to this Maury Terry guy. So they coordinated a meeting and Berkowitz talked a little bit about how when he was a kid, he felt something was pulling him into darkness. And so, um, you know, he went into the service and the military thinking that would help. But when he got out, he became to get really, really low. And um, he kind of started looking for connection and stuff. And that's how he wound up getting involved with the children. Um he claimed yeah. he was looking for companionship. He was not looking to join a cult or do any sort of crazy stuff. Um, but that but that's how it usually starts, right? Yeah. You know, I think most people don't go out like, oh, I'm going to find a cult. Most people are like, I want to feel a sense of belonging, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's what he said. That He was like, I just wanted companionship. Like, I was lonely. I had no, I had nothing. I had no one. Um, and yeah. so he did confirm that he hung out around Untermeyer Park. Um and that he did witness animal sacrifices. Um, He said that on one hand, like initially he felt like it was wrong to sacrifice the dogs, but then on the other hand, he was really fascinated by it. Um, And he said Mm -hmm. that he had to take a blood oath and swear to worship to the devil. um, And then he gave them photos of his family. So if he ever betrayed his family, ever, you know, um, ever betrayed the group, anything like that, they would go after his family was kind of the implication. Yeah. And okay. so then Maury asked the big question of, were you involved in the son of Sam shootings? And if you were a part of any of them, who did you shoot? So out of all of the shootings, he said the uh, shootings of Donna Lorio, Suriani and Esau were the only ones that he actually took credit for. And he was a part of. Um, he admitted that John and Michael were a part mm. of it and um, they also committed some of the murders, um, but he did not name any other names other than the Carr brothers. Um, mm. And something I do want to mention, it's not as obvious in this specific interview, but you could say some of Maury's questions could be seen as like leading questions um he would say things like is it true that blah 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 like is it true that you hung out at untermeyer okay like that 
Um, but at least in this interview, to me, it did feel like it was more conversational and more like Berkowitz was giving information. From what I can see, I didn't watch the whole thing. Um, but well, and some of that though, like if if he's been told that these kind of sacrifices happen in the part or whatever, you know, asking, hey, you know, was that a thing that you were a part of? I heard you were. You know, I don't know. I mean, if he, I don't know. Yeah, the like, leading me, question thing is hard. Because sometimes there are some questions that are totally leading questions. This to me is more and more yeah. like wanting to confirm something. Like, this is information I have. Yeah. Can you confirm it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the interview was put on Inside Edition and it gained a lot of traction. So then Maury decided to investigate a lot more intensely. So he created a little group called the Pine Street Irregulars. Um, oh, <laughs> that's and I know they have a little name. They still meet to this day, which I think is real cute. Um, oh, that's nice. So there are. See, a bunch they of- found a sense of belonging too. Exactly. So there's a lot of <laughs> interesting people involved. So um, the first was Detective Joe Coffey. Um, he wasn't actually. Okay, hold on. Backing up, backing up, backing up. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. At the time, the NYPD were outraged by the interview that he did with Berkowitz. Um, specifically, okay. Detective Joe Coffey would do everything he could to discredit Maury, and he would also antagonize him. Like, Maury would be on a radio hmm. show, and this detective would call in and be like, you're such an asshole. You're so stupid. Like, you know this case is closed. Like, he would just, like... What? <laughs> that's crazy pick on him and i like i feel bad for maury so you know they treated maury as though he was lying he was just making up some sort of thing and so maury created the pine street irregulars and in a sense of being like i'm not the only one that sees this it is not just me um yeah so some people who were involved were victim carl denaro um he really felt like it was not Berkowitz that shot him and so okay. he decided to work with Maury he still claims that it was not Berkowitz that shot him um wow there was also detective Well and I mean if you're not even going to listen to the victims or the witnesses like you know I don't know what is wrong with us if we're not going to listen to the people that actually saw the person yeah, and I know that like witness testimonies could be wrong, but when you're having someone say it was a blonde guy and you're trying to make David, I don't know. Like there's there's like, oh, he had blonde hair and green eyes, and then the guy actually has like blonde hair and maybe like brown eyes or something. That's not a big difference, but yeah. like you know, I don't know. To me, it just seems a little ridiculous they're not believing him. So yeah. they're um was also a detective that was working with him. His name was Kevin Murphy. Murphy. Oh my goodness, I can't talk. Um, and he worked with Maury and Yonkers to kind of research. So he talked to people that knew Berkowitz and things. He found out that Burke wasn't like the loner that the media claimed he was. Like he apparently was a social butterfly. Like he was a part of the bar scene. He went out. He did things. He apparently had a girlfriend at one point. 
Like, so painting him as this like loner who like couldn't perform with women sexually and like wasn't able to like make friends is, isn't right. Um, And apparently people claimed that they would all meet at Untermeyer Park and like party, drink, do drugs, have sex. Like it was a wild time. Um, And apparently he had talked to one of Berkowitz's associates about the case and he was so freaked out. He took his life a few days later. And there were several others where he would try to talk to them and they lawyered up immediately. So again, whatever this group was, whatever their reach is, people are still terrified of them, you know? Um, Yeah, I'm surprised that they didn't ever come after Maury. I think... Because you would think if he's like poking the bear, you what I mean, I guess that would bring more attention to their group or... would maybe give some legitimacy to his argument but yeah yeah, you would think they'd want to shut him up I feel like because Maury put himself into a hole where people just thought he was crazy a little bit like I think they were like oh he dug his own hole you know um yeah which could totally be the case I don't know please don't come after us um Colt uh (laughs) but anyway so there was someone named John Paul who was involved with some of these folks and he was willing to talk on the record. So he said that everything started out fairly innocently. I think we mentioned before, like, again, they were all looking for companionship, looking to have friends and it became more intense. He definitely corroborated that there was like some pornography and dark film things happening. Um, And according to Maury, they were able to make that connection to Ronald Sisman. Um, I don't know if John Paul necessarily corroborated this, but Maury somehow was able to piece together that Sisman was parked under a streetlight and filmed the Moscovitz killing. Um, They said that he was in a van um, and he had borrowed a Betamax camera from his family, which could have shot the snuff film. Um, Apparently, a lot of people around Sisman were involved in the process church and the children. And so at this point, Maury had kind of put it together that there were at least five people involved in the shootings. Um, And like I said, it's Berkowitz, the Carr brothers, and then two more, but we didn't really get names for those two. Um, So he brought it to the NYPD. He was like, this is my stack of research. This is what I have. And they said, we'll be in touch. And that was it. Um, wow. Others. So Kevin Murphy, he was kind of doing like a, it wasn't technically a cold case unit type thing, but they wanted him to just kind of poke around. And that's why he got involved with Maury. And he was uh-huh. just told, thanks for your info. Please close the case. We're done. Like, again, it was like, a, we're not doing this. Wow. Um, so... In 1997, there was one final interview with Berkowitz. And a lot of people, you know, still did say they were like, he really, his information, his story, everything he came up with was really sound. He just didn't get like a platform that would actually let him prove it. Um, Yeah. And Berkowitz in the interview did admit he said the van was related to the case and there was filming going on. 
he said Sisman was in the van and he claimed to know him. Um, he also claimed that the process were involved, but he was very vague about how they were involved in the case. Um, he claimed that he did have information on Arliss Perry, but refused to give any sort of proof that he had information about her case. Um, okay. He did claim that there was drug trafficking and things involved with children. Um, he didn't go into that. He kept it very vague. Um, at least the children piece. And I will say in watching the interview, I felt like Berkowitz was really hesitant to give Maury info. And this is where it got very suggestive to me. Um, and a lot of people who were there said that it felt like he was interrogating Berkowitz. Like it felt like a police interrogation where maybe, maybe Berkowitz wasn't like under duress, but he definitely wasn't comfortable and like able to just have like a normal conversation um okay a lot of people yeah i mean if he was afraid that there's gonna be some kind of retribution you know i can understand why he'd be uncomfortable but people are saying that the interview tactics didn't seem right right and so okay um, during the interview a lot of people felt like he told maury what he wanted to hear um okay And he said that after the interview, people did see that it was a possibility, but like, it was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. And then people moved on and Maury wanted the case to be reopened. He wanted justice, you know? Yeah. Um, And so he was really frustrated that no one was interested in solving it. Um, And he really felt that like, if the children were not stopped, more murders would happen. And so he basically got to the point of, obsession where like he was just hyper fixated like if you like told him you believed something else you were kind of dead to him he was like get out of my way like I'm gonna figure this out and again he was committed to this until his death so um Maury at this time kind of turned to drinking he was smoking two packs a day all the things and he um he began to crack under the stress for sure Um, his heart was failing. Um, and a lot of people do say that like the case was his white whale and, uh, you know, even hours from death, like one of the Pine Street Irregulars came to visit him and he was like, still being like, oh, you need to call this attorney. You need to call this person. You need to talk to this person. He had like a list ready of like, this is what you need to do for the case. Um, and he did pass away uh, in 20. 2018 2017 um and i do just want to say none of the children or the process church were ever arrested in connection with the son of sam case but the pine street irregulars are still meeting to this day um which i think is kind of cool wow um yeah before we close i do want to say um there was kind of a little break in the case in 2018 um when Arliss Perry's case had been solved. So thanks to DNA evidence and other things, um, they were the, you know, I don't, I don't know if it was Palo Alto or wherever she, I was, I think it was Redwood city, actually Redwood city. Um, they were to connect Stephen Blake Crawford to the murder of Arliss Perry using DNA. Like I said, she, had been assaulted and things. Um, And 
something really interesting yeah. is he was a suspect from the beginning and there's actually an interview with maury from the 90s where he's like it's the security guard like it's obviously the security guard and it mm-hmm. was he was the security guard that was in the church and um he was oh, one wow. of the witnesses and um when they went to arrest him he actually took his own life um and so mm-hmm. he something that investigators actually mentioned after um you know on the news and stuff was that he had Maury's book so I always wonder like did he know Maury was on to him you know um but yeah yeah I'm sure he did but well, if I, yeah I mean if somebody was investigating anything that I was remotely involved in I would follow what they were saying and doing and writing and yeah so yeah. I'm sure he did know yeah yeah exactly so I just wanted to like end with like at least we got at least a little bit of justice somewhere even if it you know isn't the full scope but that is the main theory of if there was more than one son of Sam um what do you think mom (laughs) I mean I'm definitely thinking that it's a possibility I mean I guess it's possible that Berkowitz like had a blonde wig or you know people's you know, eyewitness accounts aren't accurate or whatever, but Mm -hmm. to me, it just seems like there's enough stuff to muddy the water that I can't fully believe it was just Brookwitz. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I just, I think, I mean, even if, even if, yeah, like you said, Berkowitz did the son of Sam killings. It is interesting. He is connected with these people who all died in suspicious ways. Yeah. And he's connected with this potential cult and this cult was doing suspicious things and other murders and other things that could be connected to it. So even if he did all of the son of Sam, but maybe that, you know, other people were acting, it's just, it's interesting to me. Um, Yeah. And I could see it. Like I said, I'm, I'm not um, totally thinking Maury's like unfounded here. Like I think he has some really good evidence. Yeah. Well, I guess other people could argue that because the murder stopped after Berkowitz was arrested, that that means it was him. Right. You know, if that was all a part of the plan was that, you know, we're going to let one person take the fall. So whichever person gets caught. Yeah. um, I mean, if that was part of the plan or if his family's being threatened or whatever, you know, I mean, I could see them wanting to have him be the fall guy and stop doing that. Yeah, well, and to me, it does feel like they really did set up Berkowitz. Like, I mean, obviously, they couldn't control that he got a ticket, but it was like he got a ticket and then he did this and then he did that. And then he was caught like pretty soon after. Like, to me, it's like it almost felt like they were setting it up for it to be him who was caught um, if it was some sort of conspiracy. So I don't know, man. (laughs) I don't know, but I think the theory is interesting. I think there's enough weird twists and turns that make me go hmm that that, you know I don't know if it all lines up completely but it's definitely intriguing yeah yeah I agree it it's at least it's something to talk about you know (laughs) something to ruminate no I think there's something to it though I I do too yeah I don't I don't think Maury was just like blowing smoke at all Um, yeah but yeah well I know this was a long one, friends, but we want to thank you for sticking with us while we yeah talked all about the son of Sam, Mr. David Berkowitz, and yeah, us, potentially. Um, I guess if you housekeeping things, uh, just keep 
liking and following and subscribing on all of the social medias. Um, We definitely want to keep doing listener stories, listener flights. So please, please, please send them to whatthealpod at gmail.com or you could DM us on Instagram at whatthealpod. Um, We do have a Patreon you could subscribe to. We're going to get Mama's bonus episode up in the next few days, hopefully. So that'll be really exciting and fun. And then outside of that, um, we just want to say we appreciate you, friends. (laughs) Yeah, and I appreciate you, Ilana, for doing all the fun conspiracy stuff. I love to hear all that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I appreciate you, Mom. Thanks for for covering the history for me. (laughs) Yeah. But anyways, yeah, we look forward to um, the next couple of episodes, and we hope you all have wonderful holidays. Yes, yes. Have wonderful holidays. Eat good food. Have good quality time with your loved ones. Do all the good things. And uh, we'll keep coming at you every Wednesday. So I guess we'll just say we appreciate you and bye, friends. (laughs) Bye, friends.